Are Republicans winning the debt limit fight? Is Biden sinking beneath the waves? And do reparations make any sense? We'll discuss all this and more on this edition of The Editors. I'm Rich Lowry, and I'm joined as always by the right Honorable Charles C.W. Cook, by Madeline Maddie Kearns, and the sage of Authenticity Woods, Jim Garrity. You are, of course, listening to a Nashville podcast. Our sponsors of this episode are Made in Cookware and the Thinking Fellows podcast. More about both of them in due course. If for some reason you're not already following us on a streaming service, by the way, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. And if you like what you hear here, please consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said anything. So Jim, I don't want to let my optimism run out of control, but at least in the early going here, and it's still early going, even though Janet Yellen says we're going to run against the debt limit wall around the beginning of June, Republicans are acquitting themselves pretty well. Kevin McCarthy, as we've discussed previously, got his uh, vote out of the, the House. Um, the Senate Republicans are, are basically on board getting something. Mitch McConnell and others made that clear last week. And you have Democrats saying, you know, this no negotiation thing uh, doesn't make any sense. The position the White House had staked out prior to this. And on top of all that, you have these idiotic ideas for fantastical ways out of this impasse from the left, including that Section 4 of the 14th Amendment would allow Biden just to ignore uh, the debt limit, all of which are signs, again, very early going, that things are going pretty well for congressional Republicans here. They are going well. Uh, that does, I, I will puncture the balloon of your optimism by pointing out that the fact that things are going well for Republicans is not a guarantee that they will, quote unquote, win this fight. And it is also not a guarantee that we will uh, not, you know, hit the debt ceiling, uh, conceivably default on paying our debts, even though the government has some options to extend that deadline a bit, uh, and that things could not end in a, you know, terrible economic disaster. For a long time, you know, you, you, I didn't write about the debt ceiling fight very much this year because there was always this very consistent pattern, right? There, there's a lot of posturing, it's close to the deadline. And then as soon as you get close to the deadline, everybody gets more reasonable. Everybody walks away with half a loaf. They insist they got the better of the deal. And we stop thinking about the debt ceiling until we get close to it, to it next time. Heading into this one, you could find a lot of coverage that said, well, this year, this time, it's different. And very often, the argument they made was that, you know, we've never had Republicans in Congress who are so extreme. We've never had Republicans who are so reckless and don't care about the debt ceiling. Or the There's no way Kevin McCarthy can keep control of this, you know, uh, rampaging maniacs, etc. And then a funny thing happened is that Kevin McCarthy did what he wasn't supposed to be able to do, which was get them to pass a, uh, a bill that would, you know, raise the debt ceiling and cut spending here and there. Um, now he only did it by the skin of his teeth. It was like what 217, 215, something like that. Um, but he got you know you know he could afford he lost just enough uh, and kept enough folks together. And the intriguing thing is that the rhetoric from the Biden and the White House hasn't changed at all. Like he was always like ah we don't even believe you guys could get together and ah you know you don't are, you're not serious about this and we're not you know we're only thing we're accepting is a clean increase. Well Republicans put their bill on the table. There is no counteroffer from Democrats so far. And one of the things I noticed that all of these this time it's different type uh, articles didn't mention was that, you know, we had a couple in the Trump years. But generally, when we've had these kind of fights or government shutdown fights, 
the president has been either Bill Clinton or Barack Obama, both of whom are once-in-a-generation political talents and really good communicators. So when it got into a government shutdown fight, you know, Bill Clinton could always be like, I'm doing this to help the school children of America. And Obama would always say, I'm being very reasonable. And you see House Republicans who are being so unreasonable. You know, and they won the messaging fight. Joe Biden is not Bill Clinton or Barack Obama. He's not nearly as good a communicator. And I won't, I'll save you the spiel on how he doesn't do his, uh, doesn't work the regular hours we're used to seeing a president working. They are meeting today. Maybe they'll have some prog progress. But I really think if we're actually going to crash into the debt ceiling, then the scenario I can envision is one where Biden thinks at the last second Republicans are going to surrender and give him a clean increase and keeps sitting there waiting and waiting for a Republican surrender that doesn't come. I, I, you know, I don't think that's going to happen, but I do kind of wonder if Biden is walking around with a wildly exaggerated sense of his own leverage. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, the, the Senate hasn't passed anything, right? The Democratic-controlled no. Senate hasn't passed anything. The Republican-controlled House next has. Week. Yeah. yeah, they're going on, on, on recess or vacation or, I'm sorry, district work uh, one of the last weeks before the deadline. And, oh, by the way, Biden's going still scheduled to go to Australia and Asia. Nobody wants to be in town, even though apparently we're on the, the bridge, uh, the brink of Armageddon. Yeah. So I think at least the rhetorical difficulty, we'll, we'll see how it turns out in the end, Maddie, that the White House has. is it, They're saying this is an existential matter. Uh, it would crash the economy if we pass the the deadline. It, we would uh, there's this, this huge constitutional obligation to honor our our debt, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And their position is they're not going to. This is so important to do. They're not going to compromise to get it done. Yeah, I mean, the, so Republicans, I think, including Kevin McCarthy and Democrats, are are meeting with the president today at the White House. Um, so we'll we'll see if they do find a path forward. But it does seem to me that Biden does not have uh, very much leverage in this situation. You know, Jim's referenced this potential game of chicken, but he has a lot more to lose here. And I think Republicans know that. Nobody wants to be the president who isn't in, in charge at the helm when um, economic catastrophe hits. And I think actually this is something we've seen with McCarthy's play, playing a strong hand here is, you know, if they do kick the can down the road with a temporary suspension, say it lasts a year, as uh, Republicans have suggested, um, you end up delaying the same debate so that it coincides with the 2024 presidential election cycle. And again, has the potential to hurt Biden more than I think it has potential to hurt um, Republicans because public satisfaction with Biden's handling of the economy is is not, uh, they are not satisfied, uh, to put it mildly. So, Charlie, what do you think of the, the debt limit as the debt limit? You know, one argument is that it's just a, a ridiculous uh, contrivance that forces these periodic crises and uh, other countries don't do it this way. Another way of looking at it was, well, you know, the Congress uh, has the, the tax and spending power, and this is um, part and parcel of that fiscal power. And prior to 1917, when the we got our first debt limit, you know, which is a long time now, right, over 100 years, Congress was was actually approving uh, every bond issuance. So the, the debt limit isn't some increase in congressional power and control in this area. It actually represented Congress stepping back for better or worse. And then that's Part one. Part two is I'm curious what you make of this argument that the 14th Amendment would allow Biden just to ignore the the, the debt limit. The debt limit is an unconstitutional um, a, a pinching of his 
powers and a sign that this idea is increasingly fashionable as Lawrence Tribe was against it and said it was ridiculous back in 2011. Now it's out with the New York Times op-ed saying, I've changed my mind. Actually, Biden can just do what he wants here. Yes, Lawrence Tribe has discovered the famous A Democrats in the White House clause that has caused him to alter his opinion of the Constitution over and over again during the last six or seven years. This is clearly a congressional function. Borrowing, spending, taxing, all of which are interlinked and inextricable, are, per our constitutional order, the preserve of Congress that the president has thrown into this negotiation the prospect of his just doing it anyway is a another reminder that our system is broken. Not broken because it is flawed in its roots and its foundations. Broken because the executive branch has grown out of control. We see this all the time. If Congress won't wave away student debts, the president will pretend that he has the authority in some unrelated statute. If Congress won't give President Trump the authority and the funds to build his wall, the president will pretend that an emergency allows him to do so. If Congress won't pass the immigration reforms that Barack Obama wants, then the president will pretend that he has the authority to create new classes of immigrants on the fly and that prosecutorial discretion is the same thing as declining to enforce the law. This has not come out of any scholarship. This has not come out of some profound shift in our historical understanding of the meaning of the 14th Amendment. This is an attempted end run around our constitutional order and around Article 1, which has been provoked in the short term by shock and horror that the House of Representatives, which is the primary entity that deals with the budget, has actually done its job and passed a bill here. A bill that President Biden doesn't like, that's his prerogative, but a bill that is entirely constitutionally sound. The House of Representatives is responsible, along with the Senate and the President's signature, for raising the debt limit under our system. It's also responsible for the budget, and the budget can include cuts as well as spending increases. So I despair a little bit that our debate has once again gone to where it always goes, which is the President erasing the legitimacy of Congress because he senses that he might not have the leverage that he thinks that he should. Jim Garrity, exit question to you. Who will win the debt limit showdown? President Biden, congressional Republicans, or no one? So since Jeff Zients took over as White House chief of staff, we've seen Biden uh, pull the rug out from congressional Democrats on a couple of issues, the D.C. crime bill, drilling in Alaska, uh, I kind of wonder if we're being set up for Biden you know, getting close to the deadline and Biden making concessions that he insisted he was never going to make because they didn't want to deal with the, con- the you know, severe political consequences of hitting the debt ceiling and the you know, economic 
anxiety and turmoil that would come out of all that. So it's it's I can see a scenario where Republicans win at least more than people expected going into this. Uh, it's that having said, it you know most people had very low expectations going into this. Maddie Kearns, Biden, congressional Republicans, no one. I think congressional Republicans, I think you're already seeing signs that Biden is um, insecure on this. I think the, the 14th Amendment stuff is is uh, proof of that. I mean, it would obviously be subject to immediate legal challenge anyway, and would you'd have to worry about interest rates and market reaction um, as well. And <clears throat> even Janet Yellen has said that really the only solution to this is Congress acting. Uh, so I think that they will be forced to concede. Charlie? Well, I think we will get a compromise, which is how the system is supposed to work. I think all manner of people in politics and the press will disqualify themselves from serious consideration by insisting that we should mint the coin or do whatever other extra constitutional idea is on vogue this week. I really do think, though, that Kevin McCarthy, of whom I was not a particular fan, has excelled in this role, not just here, but elsewhere, and taken away a lot of the president's bargaining chips. Because you know what you really want to be able to do when you're a president in this situation is to say, this is a crisis. The Republican House has to avert it by passing a bill. Mm-hmm. But they have. They yeah. have passed a bill. So now he's on much weaker ground. Sure, he's going to play political games. He's going to say, oh my goodness, they're cutting this, that, or the other. They hate veterans, they hate children, they hate teachers, or what you will. But that's a much harder sell if you're, uh, if the fear-mongering scenario you're trying to avoid is Armageddon. Yeah, so if the, if the contest were between Biden saying, we need to do this, and House Republicans saying, no, we're not going to do it, Biden would win going away. But this makes it much harder for him. I think we'll get some sort of compromise. And so I'm going to say no one because it'll be less than House Republicans want. And it'll probably still end up being very painful for Kevin McCarthy to get through the House, whatever this compromise is. And Biden will have lost by the standard he's created here, which is just it, it has to be clean. And the Obama compromises were a disaster. And we can never do that again. He's going to have to do some version of that again. So with that, let's hear from our first sponsor, Made In Cookware. We have Made In frying pans here in our kitchen, and they are awesome. Made In was created by a 100-year-old family business specializing in high-end restaurant supply. It works with celebrated chefs and expert artisans to craft elegant, professional-quality cookware for restaurant and home kitchens alike. Your best meals are ahead of you with artisan-made, restaurant-quality cookware. Made In's award-winning non-stick cookware has a double layer of professional-grade non-stick coating. It's stained Stainless clad is nearly indestructible and has unparalleled heat retention, making for even heat distribution, which is obviously very important when you're cooking. We found this all to be true. Our pans are great to handle. They cook evenly. And very importantly, also, they are easy to clean. And I say this as someone who spends basically an hour a night at least cleaning up the kitchen. If you ever wonder why I have the time, how I have the time to listen to so many history podcasts, it's because my hobbies have to be something I can do while uh, scrubbing pans and dishes at night. And these are a joy because they are easy to clean. So Maiden gets our highest recommendation here in the Lowry household and very importantly, and especially my wife's 
highest recommendation. Right now, editors listeners can get 10% off full-priced items on orders of $100 or more from Made In. For full details, visit madeincookware.com slash editors. That's madeincookware.com slash editors. Please check it out. I guarantee you will not regret it. So Jim Garrity, we had a shock poll, that uh, cliched phrase dating back from the Drudge Report and his glory days when you'd have that that all caps, maybe in red, shock poll. Sirens. Um, yes, sirens, gifts, sirens going off. Uh, just, yeah, it was crazy times. So this Washington Post poll had Biden 36% approval, just a, a tick down from his lowest which in that poll, which I think was 37%, and losing to Donald Trump pretty handily in the head-to-head, six points. There's some people who say there are sampling issues with this Washington Post poll, and it tends to be a little bit of an outlier. I have not looked into that myself one way or the other. Even if it's true, Biden is demonstrably down from the last Washington Post poll, which would have the same sampling issues, obviously, and is losing ground, importantly, in the quality of uh, being honest and trustworthy. Now, he leads Trump on that quality. You know, who doesn't? <laughs> but but not, not by a large margin. And then the other shock numbers for these polls, just the, the number of people who doubt his mental acuity and his physical stamina, big majorities, and you still have these eye-popping numbers for people who want someone else to be the Democratic nominee, including Democrats. I think the breakdown among Democrats in this poll, pure Democrats, was 47-47. But still, that's that's quite a lot for an incumbent president who hasn't suffered a major scandal yet. You know, there might be one brewing, you know, who hasn't suffered a recession yet, although there might be one brewing. This is just Joe Biden being Joe Biden the last three years, and it's pretty ugly. Yeah. Look, if you want to quibble with the sample, and apparently you know there were more self-identified Republicans than self-identified Democrats, which is a little unusual, and you want to quibble with that, okay, you can. Uh, I don't think you can quibble it or, or dispute the sample enough to the point where Biden has good numbers uh, out of this. You know, the, what, what made people kind of sit up and take notice is that, uh, one, yes, these are worse than the average he's had. I think he's at, you know, right around 42 percent in the 538 average of all the current national job approval polls. Uh, you know, 36 percent isn't that, you know, is bad, is worse than that, but it's not that much worse than that. You know, so okay, they're they're underdoing it by a few percentage points. Oh, he's at thirty eight. Is that really that much better? Is it thirty nine? You know, um, you really can't look at this. You know, oh, so instead of you know you know just under two thirds of the country thinking he's too senile uh, mentally and physically to be president. Uh, okay, he's it's let's say it's only sixty. It's not that much of a better. You know, you really can't spin this into oh things are fine. Um, it is a little surprising to see both DeSantis and Trump beating Biden handily, as in this sample. Uh, but again, I think that you know this kind of sends off a big signal flare to Democrats for two messages. The first is that when, and Charlie and I were talking about this a bit before we got started taping. Democrats had a you know not nearly as bad as expected midterm election, right? Republicans won the House, but it was a smaller majority than everybody expected. Uh, Democrats held on to the Senate. They won a bunch of you know governors' races. And the perception was, oh, okay, Biden's doing fine. Well, Biden's not really doing fine. I think the midterm election simply said they didn't like 
the Herschel Walkers and the Mehmet Oz's and Blake Masters of the world. Um, but what we really have here is a recognition that once you take off a crazy Republican alternative and you just look at Biden, the American people don't like what they're getting at all. And so this whole idea of, ah, Biden's doing okay. No, he's not. Uh, he's not doing well. He's not doing okay in the polls. He's not doing okay in terms of political momentum. He's not doing okay in terms of physical, you know, physical or mental health, I think we can argue. I noticed the Washington Post editorial board said it's time for Biden to start doing uh, press conferences again. Um, this all points to a presidency that really is in deep trouble. And Democrats had kind of been whistling past the graveyard on this for uh, quite a while. They can't do that. And the second thing is, is that as much as Donald Trump brings, you know, an entire airport's worth of baggage to the to the race, and who knows, maybe before the day is out, we'll have some sort of, uh, you know, verdict in the uh, civil trial over rape. We don't know how Georgia is going to shake out. We don't know how the Manhattan case is going to shake out, although I think most people think it's not really that going to be all that decisive. We, we don't know what's going to happen with Trump. And just earlier this week in that deposition in the rape case, he said, you know, celebrities have been able to get away with, you know, grabbing women by the you-know-where Fortunately or unfortunately? Fortunately? <laughs> Explain to me the fortunate aspect of all that. Anyway, um, you know, so Trump is always going to keep doing this. And yet, considering the state of the country, considering the state of the economy, and considering people's lack of faith in Biden, it is not unthinkable that Trump could win. This should be like, this should be the drudge siren for Democrats. This should be, I suspect, looking at this, Maybe the J.B. Pritzkers, maybe the Gavin Newsom's, the Phil Murphy's. Democratic governors are looking at this and saying, look, if he's this way at the end of the year and the only options for the Democrats are Biden, Robert Kennedy Jr. and Marianne Williamson. If you're a promising Democratic governor, you should throw your hat into the race and just see what happens. Uh, I don't know. I, I, I don't know because you wouldn't be guaranteed to beat them. You would um – you know, guarantee is a strong, strong word, but it, it would be a, a, a real uh, blow against Biden if, if he actually won the nomination. I, I mean, to, to be in Biden's shape and to have had a significant primary challenge, you're not beating Trump, probably. Maybe you can beat Trump in that circumstance, but certainly you're not beating anyone else and your odds of beating Trump go way down. If, if you do this and, and come up short, if you're a governor, you're going to be just hated hated by uh, most well, of the party. How great are the odds of J.B. Pritzker, Phil Murphy, or Gavin Newsom to begin with? Uh, but I, I still would say if, if Biden looks like a dead man walking, you won't be perceived as some nutjob kamikaze who's ruining mm -hmm. a good thing for the Democrats. It'll, it'll be both logical. It'll look like sense. It'll be somebody please come along and save us from this incumbent who is just not capable of winning. I, I think term. you would need I think you need these poll numbers plus something to happen with mm -hmm. Biden, you know, a, a fall or, 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 or something. I, I just don't think they would risk it, do it based on these poll numbers. But Maddie, another problem with uh, Biden has is obviously, you know, his appeal is not being inspiring or exciting or being a great statesman. Although never forget, there was that, that brief uh, month long FDR LBJ phase of the Biden presidency in his mind and the minds of the, the press for a couple months there at the at the beginning, but his appeal is, I'm, I'm the normal, honest guy. You know, I'll always tell you the truth, he said in the 2020 campaign. And you can't be the normal guy when you, uh, people really doubt your, your ability to carry out the job, and lots of people do, and he's, his reputation for honesty has been eroded. Yeah, that, I think that to me is the most shocking part of this, is the fact that he's so... Um, 
well, it's not just that less than half per, half of uh, Americans polled are are supportive of him. It's it's also that you know um, Trump has done so much to erode public trust, and he's only what eight percentage points behind him on that question. I mean, that's really really is very disturbing for him. He's also you know his uh, rating is is doing so badly among groups of people who supported him by very wide margins in twenty twenty. So he's at twenty six percent. Among Americans under thirty, I think forty-two percent yep. among non-whites, forty-one percent among urban residents, and 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 so on. So he's he's really just seeing this terrible slide um, everywhere. And and this is at a point at which things are are looking to get worse, not better for him. So uh, you know we're going to we're about to see the end of Title Forty Two, and and immigration is about to get a lot worse if they if they can't figure out a way to deal with that. You know there's there's a, a lot of economic predictions of recession looming. Um, so if the, if this is if this is how things are just now, it's it's a pretty bleak outlook for him. Yeah. So Charlie, a, a, another really notable couple numbers from this poll. Biden in the head-to-head matchup with Trump is losing among independents and, and losing among suburbanites. And that, that was the swing between 16 and 20. Trump won those voters against Hillary and then lost them against Biden. So does, does this poll, and you know, it's one poll, it's early, there may be sampling issues as we discussed, does it move you at all on the likelihood of Trump beating Biden if Trump is the Republican nominee? Uh, well, the way I would look at this is to say that both parties seem to be making the same mistake. If we start with the Democrats, this poll may be an outlier, but it's not going to be off by 20 points. Let's assume it's off by three or four. It's not encouraging, is it? If you look at the outlines of this poll, they're clear. Americans don't like Joe Biden. Americans don't think Joe Biden should run for president again. Americans think that Joe Biden is incapable of doing the job physically and mentally. Americans think Joe Biden is dishonest. Americans think that Joe Biden has a poor record on the economy. For a party to say, that's our guy, is nothing short of bizarre. And yet that seems, at least for now, to be what the Democrats are doing. The Republicans are doing the same thing. The Republicans know that Trump is a liability because it's been proven again and again and again in 2018 and 2020 and 2022. There is a reason that that poll showed American voters describing Joe Biden as dishonest, and that is that Joe Biden is profoundly dishonest. You know who is deemed more dishonest in that poll? Donald Trump. Why? Because Donald Trump is profoundly dishonest. And yet, at the moment at least, Republican primary voters seem to be all in for Trump. My takeaway from that poll, if it is accurate, is that anything can happen. If both parties look at the information they have in front of them, information that is not a secret, information that is not wild or marginal, 
or the preserve of a handful of people that is right out there in the open. Elementary information. Information such as Americans don't like Donald Trump. Donald Trump is dishonest. Information such as Joe Biden is old and seems it. Joe Biden has a poor economic record. If both parties say, you know what, screw it, we're going to go for it and be legends, then anything can happen. So, yes, in one sense, I suppose, if that poll is correct, or if it's even half correct, I am less convinced than I was that Donald Trump cannot win the nomination. I am just as convinced as I was that it would be utterly suicidal and counterproductive for Republicans to risk it when they have alternatives and solid alternatives at that. Yeah, to that point, Jim, that, that's another disturbing aspect of this poll. No, I shouldn't say another disturbing aspect. It's very disturbing if you're a Democrat. If you're a Republican who doesn't want Trump to win, it's very disturbing in that if you get more polls, you know, Trump's been a, a, tick, a tick ahead or a tick behind Biden in a lot of general election matchups. But if you have more polls showing him five, six, seven percent ahead of Biden in these hypothetical matchups, how do you make the electability case against him, which um, you can assume is going to be a huge element of Ron DeSantis's argument once he gets in? Yeah. Uh, I think our, our friend Andy McCarthy believes that there is a goosing or some sort of effort of Democrats to emphasize that Trump is electable because they want Trump to get the nomination because they think Trump is unelectable. Listeners with long memories will say, wait, wasn't that their thinking in 2016? Um, although I don't think you, you have to look very hard at the two you know, main options. Yes, you know, Nikki Haley and Tim Scott and these other folks are running, but they're well behind right now. Uh, and to look at, you know, the thing I said about, you know, Trump or, you know, dining with Kanye and Nick Fuentes or calling Elaine Chow racial slurs or uh, saying we should suspend the Constitution to, you know, deal with the 2020 election that he insists he won. Like Trump on any given day is going to generate something. And the question is, is like, you know, a week before uh, during early voting in 2024 or a week before Election Day, is Trump going to blurt out something else that makes even the most, you know, patient non-diehard Republican, look at this, I can't say, I can't vote for this guy. He thinks that, you know, uh, he, he demands to be called king or something, whatever, you know, whatever kind of crazy thing he's going to say. And swings like, Trump is a gamble. He may not be quite as insane a gamble. This poll indicates he's not as insane a gamble as some people thought. But again, might just be one poll. And, uh, you know, that all, each, each, the only way Trump looks strong is in contrast to Biden. The only way Biden looks strong is in contrast to Trump. Mm -hmm. Hey, crazy idea, America. What if we started with whole new options? Yeah. Well, th this was precisely that dynamic in 2016, right? Yeah. <laughs> it, yeah. was, uh, it was the worst presidential candidate in American history against the second worst. And we didn't quite know which was which, you know, until the, until the very end <laughs> when, when Hillary pulled ahead and was absolutely uh, can be deemed. The worst exit question to you, Charlie Cook, if Trump is the nominee and if Biden is the nominee, and I think ifs in both cases are still appropriate, what are the the odds? I'm not going to say percentage odds because uh, so, someone who's more numerate than, than I am said that's uh, 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 unnecessary. You, need, you, you, you can say one, but you really don't need to say both. So I, I'm going to accept that admonition and say just odds what, what are the odds of trump winning from zero to 100 percent? i think biden is still the favorite i'd put trump's chances at 35 percent 
Jim Garrity. There was a point I probably would have put it as low as 10%, uh, extremely unlikely. Uh, I think you can now itch up to that 25%, maybe a third, maybe even 40%, depending on how, if Biden continues this current rate of decline, and I mean in both poll numbers and in physiologically. Matty Kearns. I think I put Trump at 30%. So I've been 30 for a while. Uh, I'm not going to let this this one poll uh, move me, so I'll stick with 30. But it's going to be, if he's a nominee, it's going to bounce between that 30 to, to 40 percent range, which was probably what it what it was in in 2016. Maybe by the end it was it was 40 percent. But you know, even 30 percent things happen all the time. So it, it doesn't mean that he can't win, even if he's the the riskiest choice. With that, let's hear from our second sponsor of this episode, the Thinking Fellows Podcast from 1517.org. Both Christianity and liberalism has significantly influenced American liberty and civil life. Jay Gresham Machem famously stated, the chief trouble with liberalism, as we have been indicating, is that it's not Christianity. His book, Christianity and Liberalism, now celebrating its 100th anniversary, exposes the tension between Christian theology and progressive ideology. We invite you to join the Thinking Fellows podcast as they take a deep dive into Machen's work and discuss how these worldviews impact our lives today. The Thinking Fellows will bring their signature fun and conversational approach to important ideas in philosophy, Christian history, and apologetics. Don't miss out on this exciting new series. Subscribe to the Thinking Fellows podcast on your podcast platform of choice, perhaps the one you are listening on right now. Brought to you by 1517.org and the 1517 Podcast Network. Please check it out. So, Maddie, news out of California. This task force on reparations that was created in the aftermath of the killing of George Floyd is out with a proposal for an apology from the state and reparation payments to the victims of slavery or the ancestors, uh, relatives of the victims of slavery. What do you make of it? Well, I think what's immediately striking about this is that California was never a slave state. Uh, It entered the Union as a free state in 1850 um, after its acquisition from Mexico. Um, And so there's there's an immediate... uh, failure of, of in selling this from, from that point of view. Of course, there was discrimination as there was across the United States. And so they focused on um, discrimination that took place between, I think, 1933, 1977, um, and in particular discrimination that happened in housing. But of course, why only focus on uh, black Americans? I mean, there's there were lots of uh, minority groups that were discriminated during the same time. Um, you know, Native Americans, Latinos, Jews, just basically a lot of minorities had a, had a rough time during that period. So it really doesn't make much sense um, from, from the slavery angle. It also just doesn't really make sense in terms of, um, you know, I mean, it, it doesn't make sense in terms of actually helping uh, the existing disparities that fall on racial lines. So obviously there are really disturbing figures. If you look into like education, for example, I think it's like 70% of black children and uh, a similarly high figure of Hispanic children who are who are not meeting basic literacy standards, but it's really not clear how just throwing money at this problem um, 
it is going to help. I mean, you, you need policies that actually work, like school choice, um, things that actually encourage social mobility. And to be honest, this is grossly unfair on uh, t taxing people who had nothing to do with slavery, who are not racist, uh, in order to fund this. I mean, it's going to cost billions, billions of dollars. And um, the only advantage that I can really discern in this is a potential political advantage. Um, obviously, talk, talking in the last segment about who could potentially run against Biden, I think Gavin Newsom uh, quite possibly sees himself as, as such a man. And um, this is this is trying to, I think, win favour with the black vote. I mean, um, reparations are, are unpopular across Americans um, generally, but they are very popular among black Americans. And I think this is this is basically virtue signaling to get them on side. So, Charlie, California has previously apologized for Japanese-American internment camps during World War II, the mistreatment of Native Americans. Why shouldn't they apologize for discrimination against African-Americans? Well, the first answer to that is that you cannot apologize for things that you didn't do. And Gavin Newsom did not discriminate against African-Americans, at least not in the ways that are being described in this effort. It is impossible to apologize on behalf of somebody else. You can't do it. And you certainly can't do it on behalf of more people who are being forced to apologize on behalf of other people. This isn't Gavin Newsom's money. I have a number of objections to this. One, of course, is that it is extremely divisive, legally and culturally. Another is that it is frivolous because it is not going to happen this is a game there are many things wrong in california and instead gavin newsom has decided to focus on this i would take some issue with maddie's political analysis i think that this policy will, if it spreads, be a net negative for Democrats and will probably be a net negative for Gavin Newsom as well if he has national ambitions. So it is true that if you poll people on this, around 70% of African-Americans say that they're in favor of reparations and that the number for non-African-American Americans is much, much lower, 20%, 25% at most. But the Democratic Party already wins 80 to 85, sometimes even 90% of the African-American vote. So what exactly do you get out of it if you're a Democrat? You have 20% of those people who normally vote for you who are not in favor of this policy while annoying absolutely everybody else. Now, the black population of the United States is, I think, around 13%. It's lower than that in California. In California, I, correct me if I'm wrong, I believe it's about 7%. I can't see the math 
here. I can only conceive that the people who are spearheading this really genuinely believe that it is important. And I would question their judgment. It is not a sieve. After the very real pattern of racial discrimination in this country's history, the federal government or the state of California, for that matter, threw up its hands and said, you're on your own. That didn't happen. We have had in place for a long time all manner of government programs that are, as they should be, race neutral. Affirmative action is an exception. And that have helped people who were in need. I have many objections to those on political and efficacious grounds, but I am happy to accept that some of them have made a big difference in our history. To respond to that history of government intervention by saying, we've never done anything, we've never apologized, we've never acknowledged this, so now we will have an explicitly racial handout of taxpayer money, to me is, it is bizarre. And and I do not believe that it is... Uh, it is issued in earnest. So, Jim, the n- numbers are a little fuzzy. So the task force says reparations will go to descendants of enslaved people or free black people who are in the country by the end of the 19th century. Some estimates say you, you could end up with California owing $800 billion or two and a half times its annual budget currently. And I, I, I'm looking at an AP story, and I love this this quote from... An economist, which is, uh, or, or actually, sorry, he's a reparations scholar, whatever that is. And it, it, this is, I mean, this is true, but it's like one of these things that's, that's a little bit besides the point. He says, there's no way in the world that many of these recommendations are going to get through because of the inflationary impact. Oh, that darn inflation <laughs> ruins everything. Uh, you're correct, Rich. And I think one of the, you know, I, I, one of the things I'll just add to what Charlie and Maddie said is that there is a certain lack for if it wasn't such a serious topic you would laugh because uh, this is a you know panel that was set up in September 2020 it is now May 2023 we're looking at you know two and a half years of work here and they've come to the conclusion that okay it's not enough to be black it's not you can't be a recent immigrant uh, you need to be as you said a descendant of a enslaved African American or a free black before a certain date, but they think, we'll figure out who's a descendant later. <laughs> That's going to be up to the legislators. They punted on that issue, which is pretty darn important. How many people know their lineage going back that many generations? I'm sure a lot of people do, but I'm sure a lot of people don't. Um, what if you're an orphan? What if you don't know your lineage? How do you know if you're qualifying or not? Um, because of that, it is conceivable that some uh, someone who's African-American who cannot trace back their numbers will be paying taxes to the state to pay out this to other African-Americans who do have the appropriate paperwork to prove that they are uh, lineage directly back to the states. Um, I think punting on this idea of, well, we'll figure it out later about who actually qualifies. That's a really, really big issue. Um, I do think there's something kind of fascinating about the fact that, you know, that they're proposing this when the state has a $22 billion deficit and acknowledging that that... I also note that the report said that, quote, this is an initial down payment 
but there may be more. They conceivably they could decide, well, we haven't done enough as is. Of course, this is going to be further divisive. Of course, but the idea that they couldn't even get down to the here's how we're going to determine who qualifies and who doesn't is an indication that I, I feel like deep in their bones they know this is never going to happen. Exactly. Deep down, they're realizing. Um, by the way, they also had you know thought around the idea of you know doing this as a form of tuition or housing grants. Now, a lot of people who think that reparations to African Americans for slavery is a terrible idea, uh, or for reparations for past racism is a terrible idea. But conceivably, if you said, "Oh, tuition," all right, well, people are going to improve their lives with that. They're going to get an education. They're going to be uh, brighter, more educated, more successful, happier people, and that'll be good for society. Housing grants. Okay, we have a you know California's got a terrible housing problem, right? If you could do something that would actually resolve, do something to resol- help resolve that problem, maybe people. Know. But nope, nope, they want cash. And the maximum payout is roughly $1.2 million to someone who was 71 years old and lived in the whole state the whole time. Um, again, a thoroughly unworkable idea. And they kind of, and they're, you know, you look at it like there's no way they can make this work. And so if you can't make this work, why are you going through the motions of all this? Mm-hmm. You know, there's, there's some people who make the case, well, the advantage of reparations, you do this one-time payment, and then you can get rid of all these other quotas mm-hmm. and affirmative action and everything else. But of course, if you did reparations, they'd be an ongoing, <laughs> instantly become an ongoing program on top of everything else we already have. So even though we, Charlie and Jim sort of tip their hands on this, I'll ask this exit question anyway. Charlie, reparations, support for reparations will become a position with mainstream democratic support in the near or medium term, yes or no? No. I think Democrats will intuit that this would be a bridge too far, and so they will focus on what is a much more compelling, albeit not to me, political platform, which is we need to massively expand the social safety net so that everyone benefits from it, including those people who were historically marginalized. Jim Garrity. Uh, the mainstream Democratic position will continue to be this fuzzy, generalized, vague, semi-support of, of course, there are great historical injustices, and this is an issue that should be studied very seriously, but never, you won't see mainstream Democratic politicians coming out and saying, yes, you know, African-Americans who can trace their lineage back to slaves should get paid $1.2 million because of the uh, historical legacy of, of racism. Maddie? Uh, well, I, I think it's consistent ideologically with what they're doing in <clears throat> schools with critical race theory, um, which I think does have mainstream support. So I'm tempted to say yes, but I'm uh, very eager to be proven wrong. Yeah, I, the, the case for yes is that there's so many crazy things that uh, we, we all dismiss and think, oh, there's no way they're going to do that. And then they end up, you know, the trans stuff, Maddie, obviously, you, yeah. you've lived and breathed this issue. But there's so many things that were just seemed totally insane just five years ago that, that have now become uh, orthodoxy among Democrats. And they're, they're trying to insist that everyone else, you know, believe and uh, adopt the same positions. But I'm going to say no on this. I just think the politics are, are so poisonous and will continue uh, to be too poisonous even for Democrats to go there. With that, let me do a quick plug for NR Plus digital subscription service at nationalreview.com. Your way around our meter paywall. Your way if you log in to see 90% fewer ads, especially the most obnoxious and annoying ads in your way if this floats your boat to dig deeper into our community. You can comment on articles and blog posts. You can get invited 
to exclusive calls and events with our writers, editors, and other conservative figures. I'm doing one of these calls for our subscribers with Chip Roy, the great congressman from Texas who is in the middle of the Kevin McCarthy speakership fight and is going to be in the middle of this debt ceiling fight as well. Doing that in a couple of days. If you're an NR Plus member, you should have a subscription in your inbox. If you're not an NR Plus member, there will be no invitation in your inbox. But if you want invitations to uh, participate in such conversations, sign up for NR Plus. You'll reap all sorts of other benefits. And very importantly, it is a crucial way to support our valuable journalism. So if you're not already a member, please consider joining tens of thousands of your fellow National Review readers as a member of NR Plus. Let's hit a few other things before we go. Jim Garrity, you have been enjoying some high school theater. Yes. Uh, if you want really, you know, I, I would argue good entertainment value for your buck. It is spring. It's usually a time when high school drama departments are putting on either their spring musical or spring play. Go check it out. Uh, worst comes to worst, you see, you know, bad high school students and you shouldn't expect that much of them. Uh, there's another family that are like, you know, such close friends. We're like de facto, you know, cousins. And, uh, this family's son was the lead in Oakton High School's Mean Girls. He's not playing one of the mean girls. He's playing the, uh, the boyfriend slash love interest. Uh, and we've always rooted for this, uh, this young man. Last year's musical, we learned he could dance. Uh, and I remember trying to feed baby food into this kid and him spitting it out. And I went, like, wait, what did he suddenly turn into this, you know, tall, uh, you know, graceful uh, figure? And then this year, we learned he could sing. Uh, he's really good, and it was just this absolutely enjoyable experience. They are doing, if you happen to be in the Northern Virginia area, they are doing three more shows. I think it's Friday, Saturday, and I want to say a Sunday matinee or something. Check it out. Good time, and uh, just kind of, you know, always, in a, in a world where it feels like everything's going wrong, sometimes you can have a fun time just watching your local high school theater department sing its hearts out. Maddie, you've been watching Jack Ryan. Yes. Uh, so my husband and I started watching this series on Amazon Prime and we started with what we thought was season one um, but then by the time we moved on to season two we were really confused uh, as to why all the characters were pretending not to know each other it seemed irrelevant to the plot and um, finally we realized that they they did in fact know each other and we'd in fact started with season three which um, uh, caused a lot of confusion but once we once we put that right we uh, were able to enjoy it more. Charlie. I have been playing the game Roller Coaster Tycoon. Anyone what, else play what this? Is this? What is this game? You get to design your own amusement park with all of the, the roller coasters and run it as the general manager. <laughs> it's in the vein of Sim City <laughs> yeah. and other such games. I mean, it, you're just like taking Sim City, the cohort playing that has to be pretty geeky, and you're taking it even to a higher level, going even more niche with the running an amusement park. Right? What are you saying, Richie? Are you saying that, <laughs> are you saying that being a roller coaster aficionado is oh, being a, I would never say that. It's like no. being a train spotter. You're you're putting you're putting words in my mouth. Train spotters who don't mind getting their hair messed up. <laughs> Anyhow, my children are hooked on it with me. As I said last week, I was a single dad this weekend, my wife was away and I thought what can we do? Because it was uncharacteristically windy and rainy, and our planned day at the beach 
was ruined, and we seemed to have exhausted everything that we could do inside sports and homework and board games and puzzles and so on. And so I thought, well, I'll try this game from 2002. And it was a huge hit, not just with me, but with my kids as well. Their favorite thing to do was to name the various people who work at the park after them and their friends and then check in on them and see if they were doing a good job. So I'm not saying this to, to brag, but I have a spider trapped in my bathtub right now because <laughs> I, uh, I, I try not to kill bugs, something I picked up from my dad, except for some pests, you know, swat a, a mosquito. But there was a, a stereotypical straight out of Woody Allen spider in the, the shower uh, last night. And instead of taking an issue of National Review and, and uh, visiting some extreme justice upon this uh uh, this, this spider, I, I didn't have time to capture it and take it outside. It was kind of late. So I transferred it over to the, the bathtub. Uh, and, and it, I thought it would just kind of harmlessly climb, climb out and go, go someplace else, but it can't climb out. And so a couple of times I've been up there this morning and I look at the spider and I feel sorry for it, but I haven't had time to, to take it out. So one of the reasons I'm mentioning this in the podcast is I think that this will help remind me that I actually got to go take the spider out. I don't know what the uh, how, how long a spider can survive, you know, without any without any food, but it would be terrible if the spider just died a lonely death trying to climb out of these out of out of this this, this bathtub. It would have been better if I just stepped on it rather than visiting that uh, end upon the spider. So uh, I I, ho- I hope to get this spider out of the bathtub soon. With that, it's time for our editor's picks. Jim Garrity, what's your pick? Well, first, Rich, I'm going to observe. Wait, according to Woody Allen, isn't there a proud National Review tradition of killing spiders? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Movie, why don't you get William F. Buckley to kill the spider for you? So <laughs> I, my my yeah, belief I, was we are uh, on call, kind of like yes. the Ghostbusters. If someone has a spider, someone from National Review will come to your house and kill it for you. Yeah, I got um, multiple copies of the print issue of National Review just waiting, but I, I'm not, go. not going to use it. Maybe I'll, I'll help... Uh, uh, I'll, I'll use one of them to help tra- trap it's, it and it's, place it outside. It's brilliant. And let's face it, it's also really good for killing spiders. Mm-hmm. Um, just the right weight and, and maneuverability in the air. Anyway, um, my editor's pick is Charlie Cook's Joe Biden is the Democrats problem. Uh, we talked about it before the, we started taping the podcast. We kind of alluded to it in our discussion about the poll about the Democrats. Look, you know, if you look at these numbers – and the sheer number of Americans who think Joe Biden is senile, well, that's a problem for the Democratic Party. They don't can't just say, well, Trump's bad, America, so you're just going to have to take it or leave it. Well, Americans may well leave it. They may just decide not to vote for Joe Biden. So uh, Charlie is always insightful, and that is just a, a blunt, succinct bucket of cold water to the face that the Democratic Party needs to hear. I don't think they'll listen, but they ought to. Maddie Kearns, what's your pick? My pick is Andy McCarthy's coverage of the Trump uh, civil civil uh, rape case, um, which I'd I'd rather not know about. But I started it and then I figured I might as well just fall through. And Andy is so thorough and so reliable. And um, I I think it uh, he he deserves to be read widely. So, Charlie. My pick is your piece, Rich. The absurd 14th Amendment option on the debt, as I adumbrated earlier, I find this behavior abhorrent. And as you note, it is a dead giveaway that the 14th Amendment option is a ridiculous contrivance that pretty much everyone in authority dismissed the idea until now. So uh, I got that point from you, Charlie. 
in our brief conversation. Well, I, I probably would have come up with myself, but you you, uh, <laughs> you, you drew it out for me. So, uh. Well, I liked your piece anyway. I mean, whether it reflects <laughs> me or not, I... Uh... <laughs> Thank you. So my pick is the DeSantis Rebound Begins Now by Neil Freeman. Who knows? Maybe uh, maybe a little a little uh, uh, too too hopeful. We'll we'll see. But Neil is a fantastic political observer. Has been around National Review for decades. A famous friend of of Bill Buckley and involved in some of his great ventures, including the mayoral campaign and firing line. And on top of everything, is a really lively and elegant. Writer and and he makes the the case. Although this you know last two or three months have obviously not been great for DeSantis. He has uh, nowhere to go uh, from here except for up. So that's it for us. You've been listening to a National View podcast and your rebroadcast, retransmission, or account of this game without the express written permission of National View Magazine is strictly prohibited. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable. Sarah Schutte, who makes us sound better than we deserve. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you, Maddie. Thank you, Jim. Thanks to Made in Cookware and the Thinking Fellows podcast. And thanks especially to all of you for listening. We're the editors. We'll see you next time.